Welcome in the latest episode of that SEC podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bratton. I go by SEC Mike on Twitter. And hey, Cousin Shane's still out away from the show, spending time with the family. So I reached out to friend of the show, Will Miles, covers the Florida Gators for readandreaction.com. Really great conversation with Will coming up in just a second. Uh, Florida Gator fans are definitely going to love it. And I think even um, the non-Florida homers will enjoy this one because Will tells it like it is. Certainly concerns there with Billy Napier after year one. Will is not ready to move on by any means or anything like that. But before we get to our conversation, not a ton of news. Two little items here I wanted to hit on before getting to an all-SEC show topic. Hot seat. The offseason is the perfect time to discuss the hot seat. And I can be perfectly honest with you. I don't know that anybody in the SEC is technically on the hot seat. And that's kind of the way I kind of prefer it. I, th- I think firing these coaches all the time, I think that leads you down a dangerous, dangerous road. But I have broken this down. All 14 SEC coaches putting them into hot seat tiers. So we'll get to that right before our interview with Will Miles. But I want to start with this. Not football-specific news for Tennessee, but uh, the program's AD, Danny White, was just given a contract extension. He's going to be the highest-paid AD in the SEC. And I think it's a smart move. Because you got to remember, when Danny White was hired away from Central Florida, the program, particularly the football program, which drives, you know, the vast majority of all revenue on a college campus, the, the football program was in shambles. And Tennessee's been down for a long time, and most much of that has to do with the fact that leadership has just been a train. You think the football team's bad, you should look at the the leadership in place at the school. One idiot AD after another literally had a coup among <laughs> Philip Fulmer a couple years ago to to snag that thing away from who was it John Curry it's been just one disaster after another Danny White has come in smooth sailing since that time Tennessee football's at its best in two decades Tennessee basketball among the top teams in the SEC annually baseball's been number one tennis number one uh, so I mean there's a lot to like and even USA Today gave Tennessee what's called the uh, All-SEC Sports Trophy because the men's and women's programs are doing better than any other in the SEC. And I think that's a big tribute to Danny White, who it's not just hiring coaches. I, that's <laughs> that's what we used to assume. That's all ADs did. Now they're fundraisers, big time. And he's raised more money in one year than Tennessee has ever raised before. So... Danny White doing a hell of a job leading Tennessee into the future, and they have awarded him with a massive, massive pay bump. Interestingly, one day after Josh Heupel became a $9 million man after he was made a $5 million man just a couple months ago. But I do find it interesting, last thing I got on this, Danny White, Josh Heupel both get contract extensions, and 
It sounds like the NCAA is going to rule on Tennessee and Jeremy Pruitt very soon. So I just think it's kind of interesting that these contracts are ironed out and made official right before that. And it's worth noting, of course, I mean, Tennessee fans know this, but maybe the rest of the SEC won't. Heupel and Danny White had nothing to do with all that. That was the previous regime, Jeremy Pruitt and company. And that's probably why Pruitt's not the D.C. down in Alabama just yet. We'll find it. We're waiting to find out what kind of punishment he's going to get handed down from the NCAA. The only other news item here I thought uh, was worthy of discussion involves two SEC teams, Kenyatta Goodwin, former Kentucky signee, jumped into the transfer portal. Now he's a Florida Gator. It's official. The school announced it here on Wednesday morning. And pretty big news here because Florida, a lot of turnover on that offensive line. Goodwin come in there. I don't think he's a plug-and-play type guy, but he was a five-star recruit. Very rare that Kentucky gets a five-star on campus. And this is a guy they had to battle with, Michigan State. All the way up to, uh, I believe, National Signing Day. It was like a, a big drama field day. Didn't know where to go. Went to Kentucky. Well, hell, he's gone already. Now he's with the Florida Gators. So Billy Napier loves him, some big linemen. Goodwin, I believe, is six foot eight, 350 pounds, something crazy like that. So he fits exactly the identity of what Billy Napier wants in an offensive lineman. He's going to have to work himself into shape if he's going to be a starter, though, for the Florida Gators. But Nonetheless, a good pickup, in my opinion, for Florida getting Kenyatta Goodwin on campus heading into uh, spring football down there in Gainesville. All right, so show topic for today, hot seat tiers. And really, you could kind of define a lot of these however you want to do it, but I'm doing it this way. I'm going to go from coolest seat, essentially, to the hottest, starting with three guys and really, maybe you could just put two in here, but I I threw a third in here. This tier, I'm calling untouchable. No, I mean, this these guys are on such a cool seat that it's freezing cold. They can't even sit there for very long. It's too damn cold. It's cold outside. It's cold uh, wherever they're sitting. And, of course, Nick Saban, the greatest college coach of all time, Kirby Smart, back-to-back national championships. These guys, I mean, it's... They can stay there literally as long as they want at both those programs. And I feel a little – I just didn't know where else to put this other third coach because he's not on their tier, but I do think he's essentially untouchable at this point in time. And that's Brian Kelly at LSU, signed a 10-year, I believe, fully guaranteed contract. So he's got nine more years on that bad boy. They're apparently paying him – a million dollars more than they're supposed to. I don't know if you anyone caught that, but uh, LSU, <laughs> uh, error in the uh, auditing department, kind of it sounds like office space down there, but uh, Brian Kelly getting paid an extra million dollars for, for who knows what, but I'd like to know where some of that other money's going, but if they're losing track of a million dollars. So Kirby Smart, Nick Saban, Brian Kelly, only three that I've got in the untouchable category. Now these... Just a tier below, these guys all just got contract extensions. So, extremely cold seats they're sitting on, but this is the SEC. We have seen it many times, and we're going to get to a couple in just a second. Guys that have signed contract extensions, and a year later, they're essentially on the way out. And I'm not saying this is going to happen to any of these guys, but 
we got to put them on cool seats considering just got contract extensions. Shane Beamer at South Carolina, Josh Heupel at Tennessee, Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss. They're about as secure as you can possibly get at their three institutions. I, I mean, it would take a train wreck of epic proportions for any of these three to be on the hot seat anytime soon, particularly now that uh, all three, even if they hadn't been given the contract extensions, but it makes it tougher for a school to move on from you when you just landed your richest contract in your coaching history. Now, these two, completely new hires. So, again, not anywhere near the hot seat. This is not a very dramatic list. I don't know if you guys could tell, but we this is the show we like to pump it up in the offseason, not tear you down. So, I hate to even put anybody on a hot seat, but I'm certainly not putting Hugh Freeze at Auburn, Zach Arnett, Mississippi State, were just hired. Got to give them time. As long as Hugh Freeze stays off social media, stops DMing people, he's going to be just fine there on the planes because they're going to turn that thing around. Zach Arnett, jury's still out on him, but just in his brief time there, he's killing it. Love the staff he's hired. I love the way they finished in recruiting, and they're attacking it via the transfer portal as well. They're hitting all the boxes down there. And I will say this also, pretty sure I've said this on the show before, but Zach Arnett fully on board with NIL. Not all these coaches are, and you certainly saw that. All these defensive players from Mississippi State committed to coming back for another season, and that was before the coaching change. That's a credit to Zach Arnett and certainly his stance on NIL. Now, in the rebuilding category, I only got one coach here because this is the SEC. And most schools, we're not going to give you a time to rebuild. But at Vanderbilt, you're an alum. You're showing progress. Clark Lee, nowhere near the hot seat. But it's hard to put him kind of in any tier because they are rebuilding. And I know I realize it's year three, but it, we got to set the clock back about three years at Vanderbilt. Uh, <laughs> when he came in, he said it, this is going to be a 10-year plan any other SEC program, they'd laugh you out of the damn stadium if you said that, but it's probably legitimate down there at Vanderbilt. They're not expecting anything big anytime soon, but they certainly made big strides this season. Have to love the progress being made on the West End there. Next two on the list, I think they're a bad season away from being on the hot seat. That's Billy Napier at Florida. Mark Stoops at Kentucky, who he just got a contract extension himself. But, man, the way last season ended, there's hope for this season. I'm already hyping up Kentucky once again. We got Liam Cohen. We got some transfers. We got some nice pieces to build around. We got a a very solid defense that if we continue on that path, I mean, one of the best defenses potentially in the SEC next season. But – we may have hit a ceiling there at Kentucky. And, if again, if they, if they have a disappointing season, I don't know. I, mean, I certainly don't think they're going to run him off, but it was interesting. That Auburn job came up, boom, we had to give him an extension. So what does that tell you? Was he, I mean, it tells me he was kind of pushing. <laughs> I think he was maybe a little bit more involved than, than people realize that it, maybe if not even for that job, for another job, because I don't know why you had to give Mark Stoops all this damn money, nearly $9 million a year. He is the winningest coach in school history. I get it. But but last season was supposed to be, you know, a big-time year, and it was a disaster. So you have a couple of those in a row 
we got trouble. Billy Napier, hopefully he gets to that point to where he can be there at Florida for a couple of years, but I'm not completely sold. Now, behind the scenes, I hear a lot of great things about Billy Napier. And it I've said it before, I'll say it again. It really bothers me when people say, Sunbelt Billy, because what the hell does that even mean? I mean, almost all these coaches come from a lower level. Nick Saban, Urban Meyer, Josh Heupel, Brian Kelly, Lane Kiffin, although he kind of <laughs> he went the reverse, but he was at FAU for a little while. I mean, all these coaches, Hugh Freeze, all of them, they're either assistants and they get a job for the first time or they come from a lower level. So I don't get that critique, but I do think there's real questions on, you know, we'll get to it with Will Miles. He makes some really good point on, on what is the, the messaging there. It's kind of mixed from Billy Napier. Did a good job recruiting, not an elite job. And down there at Florida, you should be doing an elite job in recruiting with all that talent in your backyard. With Georgia being as elite as they are, with Florida State seemingly on the rise, that certainly doesn't help Billy Napier. Tennessee, South Carolina, Kentucky, also relatively, all, you know, you could make the case all those programs are on the rise, maybe even Mizzou. You know, you, you certainly can't have Billy Napier losing to Vanderbilt ever again. I, I think he, he got a one v, one-time veto on that. But, uh, you know, these are the games Florida is supposed to automatically win, and they, they just lost too many of them year one. He's going to need a big jump facing a tough schedule next season, I think, to stay off the hot seat. Now, three, I guess you could say the hottest hot seat of any coaches in the SEC. But again, I don't even like to go that quite that far with any of these guys because I, for different reasons, I think these programs should keep these guys. But you need to win to potentially keep your job. Sam Pittman, Arkansas, Eli Drinkwitz, Missouri, and Jimbo Fisher down there at AM. Now, Jimbo's contract may keep him safe for another season or two but man if they go if they go five four or five wins <laughs> again they'd have to make a move I really do think and hell I probably would have fired him already but <laughs> he's got that contract locking him in there it's not my money to spend so hey we're giving it another go off season of hype Jimbo Fisher, you know, this is going to be old takes exposed here when they win 10, 11 games next season. Just watch. But same, but same thing, Sam Pittman at Arkansas. I mean, my God, look at what Arkansas was before him. And I realized last season was disappointing. I was leading the charge on the Arkansas bandwagon. We've lost a couple wheels off that wagon. But, you know, I think lowered expectations will be good for Arkansas. The schedule is a little bit lighter. And that's saying something because it's always a damn gauntlet there in Fayetteville. But this is going to be a pivotal year with the, the staff turnover, a lot of roster turnover. So we'll see what they can do. But, you know, they I think he's got to have – there's a little bit of danger of the program kind of careening. And I don't think it's going to happen. we got to show some positive momentum. When you got possibly the best quarterback and best running back in the SEC, we can't be having a losing season. I don't care what program you are. Uh, so we got to see that. And Drink, again, we made this point many a time. I don't understand why they gave him a contract extension. But at the same time, 
I don't know. I, I don't know that uh, Missouri is going to find a guy that is going to work his ass off on the recruiting trail as well as Eli Drinkwitz does. And they managed to turn the defense around last offseason. If they could turn the offense around, this is an SEC East dark horse here. So, again, it's kind of crazy to even say Pittman, Drinkwitz, and Jimbo Fisher need to win. But this is the SEC. And patience, <laughs> That's not even a word down here in the South. So I think those are the three potentially on the hottest seat. But again, I don't know that anybody's really on the hot seat in the SEC. And I prefer it that way. I don't want to I don't want to go month. I hated talking about Coach O, you know, his needing to win and he's gone. And Brian Harson. I mean, that was all offseason. That it was the writing was on the wall. I'm glad we can go into the offseason and there's none of that garbage in the SEC. But things can change in a damn hurry. We know that for sure. All right, but that's enough of me spieling. Let's get to our interview with Will Miles, read and reaction, gator breakdown, stand up and holler. This guy does it all. Let's kick it over to Will. All right, we're pleased to once again be joined by friend of the show, Will Miles. You got to give him a follow at Will Miles SEC. You can find a link to that as well as a link to his website, readandreaction.com. Does an outstanding job breaking down some Florida Gators football. He's also the host of the Stand Up and Holler uh, podcast there that I love it on YouTube. And he's featured prominently on Gators Breakdown. Did I get it all, Will? I mean, you do so many things. I think so. I'm pretty busy over here, but there's a lot to cover in, in Gatorland, as, as you're well aware, covering the SEC in general. It's been a lot going on, some drama and uh, and some some things that probably gone under the radar, people who don't necessarily pay attention to the program on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. And so, you know, let's just start there. Um, you know, what did you really learn about Billy Napier in his first year? I mean, it, I'm sure you've seen it. It's Some people have been describing it as a year zero, which is I just think of Derek Dooley when I hear that. Not that I'm comparing Napier to, to Derek Dooley. No one is quite that bad. But that's just not something you're used to hearing at a prominent program like Florida. But what what is your overall thoughts after just one year of Billy Napier's era? Yeah, well, at least he's not wearing orange pants. I guess that's sort of the uh, that's sort of the upside there. I mean, look, it was a rough year, right? I mean, Florida got to six and four after beating Texas A and M uh, and and beating South Carolina pretty handily, and then just fell apart against Vanderbilt. And then Florida State was able to kind of keep it close, but that game was Florida State's pretty much to win. They get destroyed in the bowl games. So you end up six and seven, and you sort of have this feeling like you did after the Oklahoma game in twenty twenty, where you know it just kind of felt like everything was heading in the wrong direction. Now. One thing that Napier has done is he sort of, I would say that the way I describe year one is it's been a wait and see type approach, right? Like you can even go back and look at Emory Jones, the the former quarterback there under Dan Mullen, who stayed for spring practice or at least some of spring practice before he decided to transfer to Arizona State. And I think that's what's happened is it was sort of a wait and see first year, see who was going to buy in, see who thought this was the right place to be. And then they've had pretty much a mass exodus of everybody with either one or two years worth of eligibility left, which means they're relying 
relying on very, very young players. Um, you know, look, I, I think if you look at the overall recruiting for the first two years, it compares pretty much on online with Dan Mullen. Um, I think some of the coaching in terms of being able to get the most out of your quarterback, there's some questions last year about whether they were able to do that with Anthony Richardson. The quarterback room right now is really rough with Graham Mertz coming in as a transfer. And then you've got Jack Miller, who's a transfer last year, and Max Brown, who's a pretty low-ranked recruit coming in his first in Napier's first recruiting class. So, I mean, it's, you know, the way I've described Napier throughout the last couple of years is that there's just questions, right? There's questions about whether he can recruit at an elite level to compete in the SEC. There's questions about whether his offense is going to work, whether he needs an offensive coordinator to help him out, or whether it, it's beneficial for him to have two offensive line coaches rather than being the offensive coordinator. And then the real thing that I think sort of is, is the thing that gives me a lot of pause is the fact that the defense took a major step back last year. With Todd Grantham leaving, the assumption was the defense was going to get better. The fact that the defense with many, many of the same players was was just not just statistically worse, but visually and aesthetically worse as well, um, I think gives people pause that, look, if you're not going to be able to rely on a defense that allows your offense to make some mistakes, you're going to have to be perfect. And, and Dan Mullen, for, for everything you can say about him, was a really gifted offensive play caller, was able to get the most out of those offenses in 2018, 2019, and 2020. And the defense was what was holding him back. If the offense takes a step back and the defense is still bad, it's going to get rough real quick. Right. And you did a really good job. I'll, I'll put a link in the description on your site, read and reaction of, of just kind of a little bit of the mixed messaging. Not sure what Napier is, is really going for here because, you know, day one, he says, this is talent acquisition. That, that's what we're here for. That's We all know you, you've you been well on in front of that train before it became popular. You got to have the players to win championships. Yet he also says, hey, we're not going to get into NIL bidding wars yet they're in the most publicized NIL bidding war. So, I mean, there's there's kind of some mixed messaging here, and I don't believe they signed a, a five-star, you could correct me if I'm wrong, which suggests, hey, they're not, they are not getting in these bidding wars because that's what it takes. Uh, what's your overall sense of that? Um, I, I, like I said, I know you did a big detailed breakdown. I recommend everybody go check that out to get the, the full picture of it. But um, where does that leave you with Billy Napier? Well, I mean, I think the concern for most people, myself included, is that, um, you know, you look at the numbers that are being thrown around for Jaden Rashada and you go, we probably could have four or five stars for that amount of money. And so it's not necessarily that they're that they're not getting into bidding wars or they are getting into bidding wars. It's that when you get into a bidding war, you got to understand the value. You got to understand when to walk away. Same thing if you're buying a car on a much lower scale. But if you're buying a car, the more information you have regarding how much it costs the dealer to bring in the car and all that sort of stuff lets you know what a fair deal is for everybody. And, you know, you can, there are ways to get to that. I, I had Jaden Rashada, who's, who's the, who's the recruit who sort of caused all the noise about the bidding wars and those sorts of things. I had Rashada somewhere between about a 300 to $500,000 a year player based on what the other entities have been giving out for different players. And so you're looking at a million to $2 million probably that you would give that guy under NIL for a career. 13 is ridiculous and seven was ridiculous, which means that things went beyond you know, Nick Saban always talks about process and the process. All that really means is that you've made your decision when there's no emotion so that when the emotion gets involved, you don't make a stupid decision because you're making the decision with the emotion sitting there at all times. That's why you prepare for everything in practice. So when the emotion really kicks up in the game, you do what you've been trained to do rather than act emotionally. And what this sort of indicates is that there's an emotional component, at least within the collectives that are working for the program in order to get in 
into a bidding war that I don't think necessarily makes sense for the program overall. So I think there's concern in terms of you know, you have to be able to execute and bring in five-star guys. You have a limited budget to do that. Every every organization has a limited budget to do that. And so if you don't value guys correctly, and that's what the the Rashada thing sort of really suggests to me at a high level is that the valuation on players is off, then how do you properly bid? Like what is overbidding for a player? If you have a seven million dollar value on Rashada, then you know, I'm leaving the guy who went to Tennessee is worth what, 22? Like, <laughs> like you know, so so how do you value these guys? Well, you got to understand markets, you got to understand sort of what the total pool of money is, you got to understand what's necessary to win, what position's necessary to win. You gotta look at the NFL and understand, hey, look quarterbacks make more money than left tackles for a reason, but left tackles make more than a guard for a reason and allocate resources that way. There's all strategy to be able to do that. And that's the place where I get concerned. It's it's not relationships. Everybody who's ever met Billy Napier says he's a really genuine person. He's somebody that they get along with. I think that's a big reason why Florida was in like the top three or top four for a lot of the guys who might have decided to come to Florida. But the reality is, is that just because you were in the top two for Samson Okunlola, I mean, it's a zero-sum game. He's either playing for you or he's playing for Miami. And Okunlola chose Miami, and there was probably an opportunity there for Florida to close the deal, and they weren't able to do it. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on Jaden Rashada because, like I said before we got on air, I mean, I can imagine you're you're done talking about all that, but it's been well-documented on this show. It's, it's basically been documented on every show that th- this is not Billy Napier's fault. It's not Florida's program's fault. It's not Scott Strickland's fault. It's you know, out of their hands, NIL is, is not associated with the school. But having said all that, if the Gators don't have good quarterback play next season, and particularly if they don't have it in two seasons, I mean, it's Billy Napier that is ultimately going to pay the price for this fallout. Uh, would you agree with that? Well, I mean, so I think first off, it depends on how good Jaden Rashad is. If Jaden Rashad ends up going to someplace, I think the the rumors I heard were Arizona State. Let's say he goes out to Arizona State and just lights it up. Well, that obviously is going to be a problem if Graham Mertz is playing the way he did at Wisconsin while Rashad is lighting it up somewhere as a true freshman. So I think perception matters a lot when it comes to that. If Rashad flames out, everybody will be like, oh, thank God we didn't end up with that guy, right? <laughs> so that's one of those resulting things that gamblers talk about that you got, you have to avoid when you're actually building an organization. You can't be afraid of what the result's going to be, but I think that'll probably determine a big part of that. The other thing is, is I, I guess I don't completely agree. I think it's documented that so, or I think the the information that has come out has indicated that Napier is not the one who caused the snag that ends up preventing Rashada from coming to Gainesville. But I think you set the overall tone and vision for the organization. And the fact that Nick Saban's bringing in, what, seven five-star guys or whatever he's bringing in this time, and there don't seem to be any snags on his end, indicates that there's an alignment that he's been able to to achieve. Now, whether that alignment is something that Napier's just dealing with some outside things that we just don't understand in terms of getting that alignment, but you know, that was the thing is when he got brought in, the the narrative was that he had picked Florida over some other organizations that he had picked Florida. And the reason for picking Florida was, hey, you know, this is a place where I'm going to get everything I need to succeed. And so that includes predicting that the NIL landscape is going to change, that it needs to come in, that it's going to come in, that there's going to be some inflation and all those sorts of things. But, you know, brass tacks, it only matters what the players that you have on the field. And Rashada was going to be a big part of that. He was going to be the guy that you were going to be able to point to and say, look, this guy's coming. Even if he didn't play very much or at all in 2023, you'd be able to point to that as hope. 
And honestly, that's the biggest thing in college football as a coach. You got to be able to sell hope. And so with with this guy not being here, now you got to look to DJ Lagway in 2024, the five-star recruit that they do have committed so far in that 2024 class and say, that's the hope. But like you said, if the quarterback play is middling, if Rashada turns out to be a star someplace else, if Lagway comes in and starts his true freshman year and isn't just fantastic right out of the blocks, what does that do for Napier? I mean, you, at some point you get to a place where you're making a decision on people and and, uh, you know, but like a guy like Kirby Smart was recruiting at such a high level that even with some of the mess ups in, in some of the games, you know, with like blown coverages and national championship games and, you know, fake, fake, fake punts in, in SEC championship games, even with all that stuff, you looked at it and said, he's right on the cusp. And look, they've they've turned it around. They've gotten over that cusp the last couple of years, even with a quarterback who's maybe who you wouldn't have said at least two years ago was fantastic. But the amount of talent they've been able to surround him with is able to supplement what Stetson Bennett can do. And so Napier's not going to have that. The level of talent he's going to have is going to be slightly less than LSU. It's going to be a little bit more than Tennessee, probably, or at least comparative to Tennessee, more than the rest of the teams in the SEC East, which means you know, if he's still losing to Vanderbilt and Kentucky and Missouri and those sorts of teams in a couple of years, I think it's I think it's curtains. But uh, you know, catching Georgia and Alabama is the goal because Florida doesn't really care about beating Vanderbilt. So, well, speaking of quarterbacks, will do you anticipate that they'll look to add someone after spring, or is that something that because uh, they got Graham Mertz, of course, they brought in Max Brown is a young player, Jack Miller played sparingly last season, or do you think uh, really? That'll play itself out based on spring and and who enters the portal after spring uh, with the second portal window. Now, I think based on what we saw with Jack Miller in the bowl game, based on the fact that we haven't seen anything from Max Brown yet, and based on really three years of history with Graham Mertz, they're going to bring somebody else in, if for no other reason, because even if Mertz were to beat him out, um, you would then have a backup that you had confidence in. Whereas right now, I mean, look, they didn't run Anthony Richardson, and granted, Jack Miller was hurt for a large portion of last year's last year's run, but they didn't run Anthony Richardson very much last year at all, and the reason that was given is because they were concerned about who was behind him if he got injured. And every time Richardson ran, the Florida offense all of a sudden looked completely different. Um, um, obviously, Mertz is a different quarterback. He's not going to run that much, but you're also replacing four-fifths of your offensive line this year. Um, you know They've got some transfers who are coming in who are going to be able to fill some of those holes and have been successful elsewhere as offensive linemen. But still, you replace 80% of your offensive line and your quarterback's going to get hit a few times, you better make sure you've got somebody, even if you think Mertz is the starter, you better bring in somebody behind him. And I'm not convinced Mertz is the starter. I think you know Seth Varnador uh, did a really nice job on YouTube of breaking down um, – breaking down Mertz and what he does well and what he does poorly. And it's not necessarily that he doesn't have the tools. It's he doesn't do it consistently. And, you know, what I have found historically when I've looked at quarterbacks is when they don't do something consistently, that doesn't that doesn't change. I mean, Jarek Guaratano is a great example of that. He was somebody who had flashes of doing stuff great. But when you looked at the overall stats at the end of the year, when you looked at like key games and things like that, it was just sort of it was frustrating. You're like, I understand why this guy's starting, but he's not going to take us to where we need to go. If you're a Kentucky fan, I think Florida's going to find that with Mertz. I think that's what's, what's what Wisconsin found with Mertz. And so Florida's going to have to bring in somebody else. But again, is there anybody else out there after spring practice who fits? a profile of more than just a backup quarterback. I, I don't know. It's going to be, it's going to really highly depend on who leaves. You know, you think about it like a few years ago when Dwayne Haskins beat out Joe Burrow, Burrow played behind him that year and then transferred out. It's not the way it works anymore. So if there's a situation like that, where a guy like Haskins beats, Haskins beats out Burrow and Burrow's on the market. Yeah. You go get a guy like that. Right. And that's not just because Burrow turned into the star. It's because when you've got those two guys who are competing, one of them slightly beats out the other one. Hey, that guy's going to be available these days. And so, 
So, uh, you know, if he's available, you go get him. But, uh, you know, I, I guess I, I look at it and say they just need it from a numbers perspective. And that's the disturbing part, right? You'd like to be bringing in guys where you've got the numbers and you're bringing in somebody who's more talented and is going to push everybody. Right now, they're not in that situation. They want four quarterbacks, and right now they only have three. Um, I'm not sure they would have gone out and gotten somebody if Rashada had stuck. But since he didn't, they'll probably go get somebody after the spring. Now, you mentioned the defense, Patrick Tony's unit. Very disappointing, and now you lost some star power, but maybe those were guys who were not fully bought in. Maybe they didn't fit the system perfectly, uh, what have you. What's, what's your confidence level that that unit takes a big step forward? And um, I don't want to say is his job on the line, but uh, you know, is maybe he, he on the hottest seat of, of that Florida staff? Well, I mean, Tony, I think, is the guy who, if the defense doesn't take a, a step forward, is going to be the sacrificial lamb, absolutely. But I think part of that is it's deserved, right? You have two years where your defense is just horrid, and, you know, at some point you got to point at the defensive coordinator, especially with all of the turnover that they've had. Um, you know, they're going to basically start almost – a new linebacking core. They've got two defensive tackles, Cameron Jackson and Caleb Banks, who are coming in through the transfer portal, who are going to be a big part of that defensive line. <clears throat> the front seven was a major problem for Florida last year. It's been a major problem for three or four years now. And Dan Mullen sort of tried to plug it with the transfer portal. Napier's trying to do that here with Patrick Tony as well. Um, you know, we'll see whether he's able to do it. Now, I do expect the defense to take a pretty significant jump forward just because defense is as bad as Florida's were last year almost always take a jump forward. The question is, do they take a jump forward from being a hundredth, you know, overall in scoring to 70th? And is that enough? Or is 70th still considered bad? Like in my eyes, 70th would still be considered bad, but that's kind of where you probably get into the argument in terms of, well, do you give them another year? Or, you know, do you make a change? That sort of stuff. It's really easy if they go from a hundredth to 110th or something like that in scoring you. go, Okay. We're going in the wrong direction. He's had two years, those sorts of things, you know, 55th, 60th, you know, 45th, like what's necessary to say, hey, we've taken a real step forward. That one, I don't know. I think that's that was one of the interesting things about Todd Grantham. His defense was terrible in 2020. It was inconsistent in 2021, but statistically, it actually wasn't wasn't just putrid like like it was in 2020. But he was the one who got the ire of the fans because of how bad the defense was in 2020, because quite honestly, it might have prevented Florida from playing for a playoff that year. Um, and so now you bring it forward to, to 2022. The defense was absolutely awful. If it's just middling, I think people are still going to look at it and say, look, you're supposed to be a difference maker when you're a defensive coordinator at Florida, not just, hey, we've improved slightly. So, you know, look, I, I think there's going to have to be a major jump forward. I think the linebacker additions they have specifically with Taraja Mitchell, a, uh, a transfer from Ohio State, and then they got Deuce Spurlock, a transfer from Michigan, and then Jaden Robinson is a guy that they signed out of South Carolina in this recruiting class. They have some young guys in there who have to contribute, but I think that specifically linebacker has just been an area of real, real weakness for Florida now for three, four or five years, basically ever since David Reese left. If they can get some stability in there, I think the defense can improve quite a bit. But whether it's enough is is probably going to be a question of how good Graham Mertz is, right? Because people can stand a middling defense if you're winning games. But if you're if you're six and six and your defense is sort of meh, then people start to look for where you can make a change. Now, I don't know if you saw this, Will. I've been catching a lot, some heat from Gator fans, but I put out my updated SEC power rankings. I got Florida 13th, and maybe I'm overreacting to the end of the season because you're right. I mean, before that, that final stretch, it looked like they were going to have closed strong. Where would you rank Florida right now, given all the, the uncertainty in the SEC? If you could power rank the Gators, where would you put them? 
Yeah, I mean, I think they're definitely behind Georgia and Tennessee in the East, given what we saw last year. Heupel's brought some stability to the Vols. They're recruiting at a pretty decent level. I do think Tennessee's going to take a step back, though, with Joe Milton at quarterback. I think Hennon Hooker is much better than people really realize, and I think he's going to take a step back. But, I mean, look, you're going to put him ahead of LSU? No. You're going to put him ahead of Georgia? No. You're going to put him ahead of Alabama? No. You got Spencer Rattler coming back at South Carolina, so you know what's going on there. I'd have him in front of Missouri. Missouri hasn't really beaten him in very long. So Missouri and Vanderbilt, um, probably in front of Arkansas. Auburn, who knows what's going to happen there, though I'm sure Hugh Freeze is going to change things around there. So, I mean, you know, I, I think having him like in the ninth or 10th range is probably fair, but that's kind of what happens in the SEC every year, right? I mean, you have teams that are sort of middle of the pack. Some of them have a really good year and go eight and four, nine and three. Some of them have a bad year and go four and eight or, or three and nine. And usually those teams make changes in their coaches. But you've got Alabama, you've got Georgia, you got LSU kind of on the cusp, and then you got everybody else. And so, you know, the idea, you know, Tennessee two years ago was seven and six. Last year has a great year. We'll see what happens as they as they change to the next quarterback. Do they come back to the pack? I think they will in some respects. So look, I mean, Florida is gonna have an opportunity, but it's to be good, but it's gonna have to they're gonna rely on their running game. And I don't think they can rely on their quarterback. And quite honestly, in 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 College football these days, that is not usually a winning recipe when you start playing teams that have equal levels of talent. So, you know, is is a six and six season on the horizon again? I mean, I think it could be. I think if their defense improves significantly, you get to eight and four pretty easily, kind of because of the out-of-conference games that you have. But again, next year, their out-of-conference games are at Utah and then Florida State at home. So it's not as though they're just playing the Citadel like uh, Sonny Dykes was talking about in, in, in week 13 the whole time. So, yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm – I'm going to tell you, I think they need to be ahead of Missouri. I think they'll probably be better than Kentucky. I think there's some teams in the West they'll be better than too. But, you know, I'm not going to tell you they're a top-tier SEC program right now. They're just not. Um, That's the last thing I wanted to ask you about, Will. I'm glad you went there, the schedule. Because I recently, you know, I don't know, you probably not spent a ton of time looking at all the schedules, but I'm sure you've looked at Florida's bookend by the, the games you referenced at Utah, Florida State at home. There's a lot of hype around Florida State. I don't know how good they really are. But it, they only got three SEC home games because of uh, the Georgia game, of course, being in Jacksonville. And those games, Tennessee, Vanderbilt, and Arkansas, um, I think this is arguably the toughest schedule in the SEC next season. Now, that can all change because we – you know, we we think we have an idea of how good these teams are, but but obviously we don't really know. Um, would you? What's your thoughts on that? Florida having a, a, a difficult schedule in a in a season where Billy Napier really needs to have a bounce back year. Well, it's certainly an easier schedule than or a harder schedule than Georgia has. That's for sure. But uh, <laughs> I gave them the easiest. They they have the. E- I don't know how the hell we give the champions the easiest damn path to to three peat. You know, I mean, look, this is one of the things that Florida strategically decided to do a few years ago is they decided to go out and schedule home and homes with folks. And they've always got that Florida State game that alternates back and forth. And so that's going to be the Florida schedule for the next decade. They've got a home and home with Notre Dame. They got a home and home with NC State. They got a home and home with uh, with Colorado. So we're going to be playing the fight in Dion's at some point. So, you know, that is what's going to happen to Florida's schedule from here on out. And here's the reality is if you can't beat Utah on the road you're not winning anything in the sec of significance if you can't beat florida state look florida state's a good little team up there in tallahassee and they were better than florida last year but that florida state team isn't going to be some dynamic you know hey national championship quality team i think i think uh you know 
Jordan Travis raises their ceiling quite a bit, but you know, I think if they went 10 and three again, they'd be thrilled with that in Tallahassee, given the talent that they have there. So, you know, look, I think last year you would have looked at Florida's schedule and you would have said, there's a stretch in there where they play LSU, Georgia, and Texas A&M. You would have said, that's the stretch that's going to test them. And yes, the Georgia game was tough and they lost the LSU game. Now, that was when LSU came in, I think like four and two. And that was sort of an inflection point for both teams. And then the A&M game, I mean, A&M was just a mess by the time they played them. They were able to get a win. Those those were the three you looked at and said, all right, they may have a tough time there. So you look at this year and go, okay, you got Georgia, Arkansas, then at LSU, and then Florida, and then Missouri, and then Florida State. So they sort of space those things out. But I can see a world where South Carolina on the road right before that, right before the game against Georgia, if Rattler's playing the way he did the last couple of weeks of the season, all of a sudden South Carolina's a difficult win. I think Kentucky in some ways scares me because I knew Will Levis was a fraud. <laughs> so so the question then becomes who's going to replace him and is Levis going to be good enough that, or is Levis's replacement going to be good enough to actually give them a step forward? And then, you know, hey, look, it's Tennessee at home, but, you know, Tennessee whipped them pretty good last year. And so I don't I don't think Heupel's teams are ever going to struggle to score points. I think the question is going to be, you know, do you go from 45 to 35 with the loss of Hendon Hooker? And right now I struggle to see Florida putting up 35 points on anybody with Graham Mertz behind center. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a rough schedule. Uh, but, again, I think this is one of the things that Florida has to get back to. you you got to be able to beat the Kentuckys and the Vanderbilts and the Arkansas and the Missouris of the world before you worry about taking on the Georgias and the Alabamas. And so take care of business, get ready for that Utah game. But beyond that, you've got McNeese State, Tennessee, Charlotte, Kentucky, Vanderbilt, and South Carolina. A normal floater program that is healthy struggles maybe at Utah, and then the rest of those games are just guaranteed until they play Georgia. And that's where Florida has to get back to. Florida has to get back to where we don't go. Like, so – you know, look, that Tennessee game in the middle is the only tough one, but McNeese, Charlotte, Kentucky, Vanderbilt, and South Carolina, look, Florida should be the class of those teams. And and so I look at that first half of the schedule and go, eh, it's not terrible. But again, compared to teams like Georgia and some other teams out there, it is a difficult schedule, especially when you consider all the turnover. It's a really young team. Right. All right. Some outstanding stuff from you, Will. Before you go, tell the audience, where's the the best way, easiest way to find all your work? Yeah, best place is just go over to readreaction.com or um, Will Miles SEC on Twitter. Those are the those are the places to get us. We put out a preseason magazine with Read and Reaction. That'll be coming out right around Memorial Day, so right in May. Um, we decided, you know, the two or three pages on uh, on and uh, like the Phil Steele things and those sorts of things are nice, but we were going to do one that was just Florida specific. So we last year was our first one. We put out 150 pages of a digital magazine that was Florida specific. Where are we doing that again this year? So um, you can catch that. The information is all available over there, though, at readandreaction.com if you check us out over there. All right. So just want to say thanks again, Will, for joining the show. Always appreciate having him on the show. I'm going to put a link to his articles in the show notes. I highly, highly recommend He's another guy doing an independent style here. So give him, you know, give him a read, give him a follow. Uh, won't cost you anything. He does tremendous, tremendous work. And it's not just Florida. He's not just some big Florida homer. He he tells it like it is. And uh, I know he was high, he was incredibly high on Hendon Hooker last season. And of course that panned out. And like he said, not high on Will Levis. So I mean he's pretty sharp. So thanks again, Will, for joining the show. And that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, we'll got one more coming to close out the week. Another guest lined up for the show. So really looking forward to that. It's going to be a good one. But that's going to do it for this one. We'll catch you on the next one.
Hey, buddy, this beer's for you, Mike, and Cousin Shane. That SEC podcast loves the Pirate, and the Pirate loves that SEC podcast. Hail State.